I met Adam Allred about seven years ago when I was working at MailChimp and we've kept in touch over the years. And I am very happy to have Adam come on the podcast and tell us all about his career in technology and how he got started. We got a lot of topics to cover. So Adam, welcome to the show. How you doing, man? Hey, Lee. I'm doing pretty good. Getting getting over a cold and making my way back into being 100%. Uh, like you said, I'm Adam Allred. Uh, what do I what do I do? I'm a computer engineer, a software engineer. I generally focus on uh, the intersection of application and infrastructure. I kind of like to look at the parts of computing where we take the sort of vanilla uh, application code that that users use and actually get it running on infrastructure, make sure it can scale, get it out the door. That's a little bit like an SRE style pile of work, but I, I also tend to um, look at it a bit more from an infrastructure perspective because that's actually what my background initially was, was in like the build out of, of hardware in data centers. So I, I tend to come from a bit more of a systems angle than, than a pure SRE angle whenever I'm doing my work. Interesting. Pure SRE. I like that you're like, drawing a distinction. So, so basically you're, what you're telling me, Adam, is that you're a DevOps engineer, right? In 20, we just had, just had this conversation with somebody else a couple of days ago, right? It's that the, 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 the industry co-opted the term and now they're actual DevOps as a job role. Yeah. I mean, there's that, that term is hard to, I feel like quantify or, or maybe qualify exactly what it is that, that is done. But yeah, I think you could probably uh, drop me into that space and the set of work that I would do uh, it's close enough that I say, yeah, good, good enough. I like that you drew a distinction, computer engineering versus software engineering. Oh, yeah. So so in your own words, I mean, and, and you're extremely intelligent and you're going to give us, a, I'm sure, a, you know, a very truthful and borderline academic definition. But I will tell you, I want in your own words, you know, what's a computer engineer? What's the difference? Computer engineer or software engineer? Uh, I tend to draw the line with the uh areas of computing that you're focused on engineering software engineers engineer software computer engineers i think are more oriented toward engineering the hardware but um you know there's more and more software in our hardware every day especially considering the sort of massive amounts of complexity that are abstracted away from you these days so i'm i imagine that computer engineering as has just as much of a software engineering component to it these days than maybe it used to I mean, maybe, I don't know. You've done a lot more than me uh, with hardware. So I don't know. I, I trust your opinion on that. <clears throat> but you you said early on, you said you, I forget how you worded it just now. You said you started more on the hardware side and building out data centers. Yep. Um, so let's have some origin story stuff here. It's like, what were you doing? When was this and what were you doing? Yeah. So I, I went to Georgia Tech from 2004 to 2008 for my undergrad. Um, I don't really understand in some cases, how I managed to get in at all. I didn't have a particularly great uh, SAT score. I didn't have particularly great uh, credentials as far as a high school student is concerned. But um, I sort of found out later that I was coming in and wanting to do computer science at the, you know, the middle of the, of the dot-com boom in the early 2000s. And so the, I think the School of Computer Science was a little... Um, a little scared and willing to take anybody that they could. So 
I, I still feel like I must have been like on the bottom end of the spectrum of those who were accepted on that particular I, year. I do not believe that for a minute, but go um, ahead. but I so I, I started my undergrad. I took the couple thousand dollars that I had managed to save up working at Kmart in high school and promptly blew through it in a semester. And then got back from from my first Christmas break and said, "Ah, oh, crap! I need some money." So I went. I went looking for employment that was close enough to walk to because I was living in the dorms and didn't have a car. And I had a, um, I had a buddy from. Uh, I had the I had a buddy who was the boyfriend of one of my classmates who was working as a student assistant at the College of Computing at the time. Um, and he said, well, come work with me. We, you know, manage the computer labs, we rack up servers, and we sort of, you know, do, do the grunt work of computing uh, there. And so, you know, come interview and get a job. So I interviewed and got a job. And I spent the rest of my student days doing that. We had, I mean, we did it all, um, which was in hindsight, like super duper, like fun and lucky because I did a little bit of everything. We had to install printers and make them work. Uh, God. We had to um, install and maintain computer labs. So this was still a time when computer labs were a thing. Uh, there was no requirement that everybody on campus yet own a computer when they came to college. Um, there was... <clears throat> It was like an 80-seat lab and a 30-seat lab and a Mac lab, so we managed all of those. And then there were all the servers up in the server room that was on the second floor of the building that we also, you know, racked up and installed. So the, the full-timers would, would rack up and queue up work for us to do, and we'd just pop it off of the stack. And sometimes it was, you know, go grab all these computers and take them out, put them over here, take that server, put it in, take that server, pull it out. Uh, it was a lot of sort of the sort of physical manual labor parts of it. And then a lot of the automation tools that the engineers were building there sort of being um, used by us. So we would uh, image all the computers. Uh, we would install with you know, Kickstart and other automated installation processes, um, Linux operating systems on all of the like laptop, uh, not laptops, all the desktops in the computer labs. So it was it was sort of down low it take the hardware and put it in place and then get an operating system put on it so that students could use it. So it was pretty much provisioning, but fully manual in a lot of respects. I think there's tons of places provisioning is still manual. Oh yeah. In a lot of ways. So you're you're racking servers and you're putting things together. Mm -hmm. uh, had you already messed around with hardware in high school? Did you do anything around like my high school? We had this kind of like prep for your A plus thing. Uh -huh. um, so I'd you know been around kind of older hardware, but had been around hardware and such. Had you already been around hardware, or is this a new thing for you entirely? I had been around hardware, but oddly enough, it was networking hardware. Um, I found out later when I when I chatted with some of the some of the full-timers at, at the college years later that I, I actually did have like one way that I was super lucky. There was this retired network engineer that taught the Cisco CCNA course to high school students at my high school. Oh, and wow. So yeah. And I only found out really kind of later, like that was, that was relatively unique. Yeah. It's um, extremely, yeah. Extremely yeah. unique. Um, 
I just I just assumed it was it was you know rote. Um, but yeah, he had he had two network racks at the back of a lab in my high school with four computers in between, and you you step through the CCNA courses, so you networked up. Uh, you know, a couple little computers, you built out subnets, you configured routers with, uh, at that time, iOS. And so I, I do recall sort of showing up to um, doing my interview for for that job. Like I noted that like I, I was CCNA certified and the people were like, what? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, no, they, they had it in my high school. And I, I went and did that and got CCNA certified. Um, and I think I think that actually was like a hire this child <laughs> moment, uh, which is weird because we had a network engineer who's who was solely focused on just configuring the network, and it was all iOS and Cisco equipment. And I actually ended up not working much with her at all. I ended up doing other stuff that wasn't networking related at all. Um, but so my earliest uh, interactions with with computers and hardware was actually more networking equipment than than the actual computers themselves. So, you know, my first command line interface interactions was um, with with iOS uh, rather than, say, like a DOS terminal or a Linux terminal. Even it was it was actually interaction with iOS. I'm jealous. My high school tried to do this um, and they got some equipment donated to them. Mm -hmm. It was all Nortel networks. Oh, fun. And I think by the between high school and college, I don't even think Nortel existed. At that point, when I got out of college, like, uh, I'm trying, I can't remember, but Nortel was not around um, for very long after all that. Yeah, Cisco, Cisco's still kicking. They're doing their thing, but um, yeah, he was he was a he was a network engineer. He was retired. He he got Cisco to gener to donate a whole bunch of tiny little like single rack unit routers that you know their their max their their communication was through like literal serial cables. Uh, yeah. there, they weren't even, um, there were no, um, SFPs or there was no fiber optics. There wasn't even like, there was no, there were, they didn't even use ethernet to talk between back and forth. They were, they were super old, but, um, yeah, that was, that was sort of my early bits. The, the Cisco parts more than, um, more than anything else. And the, the. It was it was it was definitely nice to be able to sort of yeah pick up something that actually was still used elsewhere and show up and be like oh yeah I know how to do stuff with iOS and everybody's like we use iOS that's great get on in here. So you show up, you get this job, you're working in that in the labs and mm -hmm. uh, in the server room, and, and you know all the stuff about networking already. So some of this is like seeing it put into application. You're like yeah I get this, and you see it deployed. And so you finish school and, and you, you're getting hands-on experience. So what'd you do when you finished, when you graduated well, just, and you have I this just experience? Around, of course. <laughs> so I, I graduated, I got my, I got my BS and then the, um, the, the peep, the peeps that were there, the people that were there working were like, would you like a full-time job? And I said, why certainly I would love a full-time job. And I went from making beans to making way more than beans, but not, not that much. Um, but literally doing the exact same work, which I always thought was interesting. And, and at least for me, it also in hindsight was sort of the, I, I think the perfect embodiment of some of the, I think, non-reality that can be academia, which is you can do all of these things, but because you're a student and you don't have a degree, here are your beans. And then uh, at, on at some day, 
a piece of paper is handed to you saying you did the prerequisite amount of studying and now you may be paid many, many, many more beans. Um, wherein, like, what actually changed in the four years from, like, the day I was first hired to the day that I graduated, I learned new and particular skills. But, like, sort of, like, the, the aptitude and core competencies did not majorly change at all. But in, in academia, you got to have that, you got to have that, you know, that piece of paper proving that you did the work. Um, and I think that in, in saying that, I think it, like I'm maybe lying a little bit. Um, Georgia Tech certainly instilled into me a, um, a work ethic that uh, has benefited me um, and a work ethic that continues to haunt my dreams. Um, but so I, I, there's, there's a little bit there in it, but I think that the, the attention paid to degrees within academia is definitely far, far greater than anywhere else you're going to find in computing. Yeah. But yeah, I, I just stayed. I just kept doing what I was doing, but in a full-time capacity. Well, that's good. Well, it saved you from, you know, the, the job hunt. I don't know, 2008, you know, we were hitting the downturn. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, I was lucky, you know, I stayed employed, but still there were jobs were a little harder to come by. There was a lot going on. I guess depending on where you lived, I, you know, being in Atlanta, being in the city, you're a little more insulated. I was in Washington, D.C. at the time. I was very insulated. Yeah. It's like the recession didn't even happen uh, oh, wow. in the D.C. area. It was impressive. Um, so that was good. So everything kind of worked out. It did. Um, and, and again, with hindsight, the naivete was totally there. Like, I had no real concept at all of we're in the middle of economic downturn, particularly in computing that the dot-com bust has happened and that, and that finding, finding good jobs is a hard thing to do. It was, I went to college, I, you know, focused for four years on only college-y things. And when college was done, there was, yes, here, would you like this job? Right in front of me. Um, only, only in sort of hindsight was it, uh, did, I, did I sort of realize like, man, I got super lucky in so many ways. <laughs> So how long did you end up staying? Well, I guess two things. Did you get a degree in comp sci or did you have a different computing related degree? Degree in computer science. So I focused almost exclusively on the sort of the writing and production of software. Gotcha. Um, and at least at Georgia Tech, I think the College of Computing um, has a bit of a bit of a highbrow mentality in that they sort of pick and choose the ways they teach computer science to try and focus more on like the fundamentals, the underlying sort of structural knowledge of computing rather than just the functional knowledge of computing. So they don't really tend to focus on, we're going to have a class that is like purely devoted to teaching you the semantics of Java or Python or any other language. They are more focused on teaching you like, you know, the fundamental ideas of computing like the construction and analysis of efficiency of algorithms, the construction and analysis of software development patterns, um, and the sort of more attempts to try and address the fundamental theory of computing in a lot of ways, rather than the, the actual process of maybe performing software development at a large scale with many people in, in a corporate environment. Um, yeah, I think that... They're very different. Yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, I think that that's sort of all. Like in, in some ways, I see that I can take that fundamental knowledge to, to a particular needed application. Like 
in a problem we're trying to solve that I can sort of look at and say like, this is, this is actually like fundamentally this style of problem. And we know that for these styles of problems, if we attempt to solve them in some ways, you know, that way lies madness. Or this is a fundamental computing problem that we don't have a solution for yet, so we should not try to find a perfect solution for this. We're going to have to use heuristics or shortcuts to try and work around this because, you know, this is like a P versus NP problem. It's, it's, it's not deterministic. It's not going to be able to be solved perfectly. Um, but in other cases, um, with less of a focus on like the particularities of how to, um, you know, sometimes stitch various and sundry systems together that don't have a lot of the sort of pristine fundamental ideas considered and applied. You hit these really weird edge cases in software where this software works until it doesn't. And then you have to deal with the realities of like, this software doesn't work the way it's documented, or this software isn't actually doing the thing that it says it does, or this software works great, except in these particular edge cases. And I still have to solve for those problems because we're still trying to get work done here. We're still trying to like, like, make money or you know achieve some end whereas i think in in academia a little bit it's like that's where that's where like a professor is like and you know that's a problem that's implementation detail you'll deal with that when you get out into the real world that's not what's important here it's like the real world cares that you actually figure out those edge cases and actually get something <laughs> done with them rather than just hand wave it away um so that was it, it comes and goes sometimes i think that that having like a, a very theoretical and fundamental computer science background is way, way beneficial. Um, but in other times, it's definitely a hindrance because you sort of start to have to wrap your head around all, all of these you know, like weird, concrete, uh, only found in reality and not in theory edge cases, and you still got to deal with them. I, I think some of those, you know, I don't know who, who ultimately will listen to this podcast. And so I know of technical folks that listen to this, it's kind of preaching to the choir a bit. And for other people that don't work in programming, maybe they're in technology, but they're not in programming. Um, maybe this is news to them, but I think there is some, I don't know, some, I don't know what, what is the right word that I think there are folks that miss academia. I think there are folks that are proud of the, um, uh, the education that they have, the knowledge that they have. And I think that's where some of these harder interview processes come from in technology and programming jobs in that you don't face a lot of these challenges day to day. It is more pragmatic. It is more just plumbing. That's what I always say. Just like, I'm just a big just fancy plumbing. digital plumber. Yeah. And I think, you know, this has crept into the interview process where we have these interview loops that are very academic in nature and they are very, and maybe not even theoretical, but that they are reaching into skills that you learn in college and that people maybe haven't applied since college. And I think people are just looking for some, some bit of that back into their day to day. That's what, that is my belief because I've worked at several places and short of being in a hard science, hard technology field or hardware. And I do think hardware is interesting in that you do face a lot of constraints and challenges that you don't face with regular software as a service, you know, type development. But I think these people are hungry for that and, and they miss that. I think that's where it, it creeps into these interview loops. I, I take a, I, the view that I tend to take for, for the 
interview loops that are sort of like more of the leak code style interview loops where it's trying to sort of present a puzzle box and figure out and work it down to this puzzle box. I, I think that the intent there is to determine whether or not someone can look at a problem and break it down to its fundamental issues, its fundamental like design or construction or constraints and then solve for those constraints. Um, and I agree that that is a good skill to have, but it's not the only skill to have. And I, I think that there's way too much focus on that as compared to a more holistic view of the entirety of the work that you do in software engineering. Um, I, I don't know if it's people trying to get back to something more academic just because that's what they want to do. Um, I, I, think, I think that it's the sort of, I think it's more born from like the, the desire to try and find a candidate that can look at a problem, break a problem down, come to fully understand it, and then produce a solution that can give you what you need. Um, my, my big argument against sort of solely that is uh, problems in computing and problems in software engineering are, I feel like, at most 50% uh, computer problems and the other 50% are not computer problems at all. They are um, people problems, business problems, constraints that are applied completely um, external to a computing system. Um, and even even in the space of sort of academically breaking down a problem and figuring and figuring it out, um, you know, none of us, you know, some of us, it takes a long time to figure that out. And like, you look at the problem, it takes you a while to sort of understand and, and grok the shape and form of the problem, because you might approach it from an extremely pragmatic point of view and only encounter the edge cases as you actually see them. And maybe the argument there is like, we would like to find those edge cases before those edge cases actually manifest themselves in prod. Um, you know, some edge cases don't manifest themselves in test or dev as hard as you try to make it happen. Um, and so I, I, I don't know if it's a, a desire to get back to, to an academic issue as much as it's just trying to make sure that they're finding candidates who will be tenacious enough or have the ability to sort of fully wrap their head around a problem that may be large, relatively nebulous, and have lots and lots of weird edge cases. I... I just don't think that it's easy to do that in like an hour. Sure. Some of these problems are way too, are far more complex to be able to get your head wrapped around an hour. And, you know, if the interview process is, you know, then also attempting to look for just speed to produce or come to, not speed to produce, but speed to come to understanding about what the shape and form of the problem is, I will tell you right now, I'm a fail those. Um, it, I do not get to the fundamental shape and form of a problem quickly unless it is something that I have seen before. When it is something sort of new and novel to me, um, it takes me time to really look at it, 
pick it apart and realize, okay, this is what this is. I've seen this and it actually does look like this problem I've seen before now that I understand it. I'm, I'm slower at that. And so don't give me a leak code interview. I will fail it miserably. I do every time. <laughs> I, I don't enjoy them. <clears throat> I think it's the thing. It's a skill all into itself. It really is. Um, I have spent, as we've talked about a little bit outside of the podcast and, you know, chatting, I'm spending some time relearning and refamiliarizing myself and learning for the first time a whole bunch of stuff about Linux networking and what's in the kernel and what's available to me. And and that I feel like is an entirely different skill set. And I'm, I've realized how much I am a product of my generation as far as doing, I'm going to call it cloud engineering. We've talked about software engineering and, and uh, computer engineering. Now there's cloud engineering. There's specifically AWS engineering to some degree. We, and I realize, you know, I, I understand fundamental concepts. You know, you have all this networking background. I understand these, these fundamental concepts, routing and a, a route table and subnets and the masking for subnets. And I, I'm like, okay, sure. I get this and the address spacing. Now all of a sudden, you know, we're in IP6 land <laughs> and IP6 is very different. Now all the things, I mean, it's different. It's not different, but it's different enough that it's like, okay, we have all these things. The conventions are there. You know, there is some mapping, this cheat sheet of like, oh, this meant this in IP4, and now in IP6, it looks like this. But then there's all all this stuff that I've never seen before getting into kind of the latest and greatest. And for people listening, in what order, you know, we end up publishing these episodes. I've mentioned WireGuard on two or three episodes that I'm just, I'm very impressed with what WireGuard is doing. I knew it made it into the kernel a couple of years ago. And it was actually, it's it's in any of the latest kernels it's built in, but I hadn't used it. I'd used Telscale. I've just used it as a, you know, as an end user. I've used some, some packaged version of this. Yeah. And so it's been fascinating playing with this and learning all of this stuff, but it's a very different skill. It's back to the kind of the plumbing. It's kind of back to the digital plumbing. It's, it's not necessarily software engineering. It's not necessarily computer engineering. It is network engineering to a degree. So we were talking yesterday, you know, you said, yes, the world moves fast and technology moves fast. And I think you said I was getting old. Was that what you told me? I think you said I was getting uh, I, old. I was, I was commiserating with you in that statement. And that, uh, <laughs> it's, it's not just you. So I was uh, a comment I made on another show was I said, you know, I think it's interesting that right now there's going to be some kid that's going to come out of college and it's a kid. I'm just going to say it. I'm all known now. They're kids. It's a kid's going to come out of college. You know, there's going to be this person come out of school. They're going to be 21, 22 years old, and they're going to be an expert at the company that they join. They're going to be an expert in WireGuard because they're going to have like played with it and used it in school and on their own. And they've had all this time to invest and they're going to be the, the expert at 22 years old on this, this thing. And so I'm seeing this whole shift. I'm seeing the shift that kind of I went through and where, you know, an older generation, or especially if you're growing up, your parents kind of roll their eyes or whatever, you know, I'll use the newfangled thing that yeah. you're playing with. And I'm starting to feel that now. I'm like, okay, yeah, I have been, I guess like I've been relying on this knowledge base that I built that's helped me be effective in my career. And now I'm seeing like, oh, there's a big fundamental shift happening and it's going to continue to shift and change. And now I got to figure out how to stay on top of things, which I'm working on, you know, trying to learn it. So have you, have you faced anything like this recently? You feel like you need to stay on top of things was, was IP six 
less of a burden for you? Uh, give me just a second. Uh, I think that IPv6 has not was not quite as burdensome for me. I think for two reasons. One is um, I, I've always been interested in networking, and so I've had a lot of context and experience in networking, and so it's I, I have previous context to draw on and say, okay, I see what's happening here. This looks a lot like how this works. That's happening there. Okay, um, but for better or for worse, the other the other bit is well, it's IPv6. It's still not ubiquitous. Um, that being said, it continues. I keep hearing to get more and more ubiquitous every right. day, but it's been around for a super duper long time, and uh, we still cannot seem to manage to use it um, anywhere and everywhere. So, eh, I mean, the, the I think it sort of comes back to when you what you previously mentioned of like the next big thing you have to keep up with things, the next, you know, 22-year-old child expert um, that's ejected from college now knows something way better than you do, and that is the next big thing. I think in computing, the disservice that we're all doing to ourselves, and I think it's sort of, you know, driven by the, by the sort of, I don't know, I don't want to say capitalist, but I don't know of a better word. It's driven by like the competition is that um, there's always the next big thing in computing all the time. And 99.9% .9 of those next big things are not actually. And if you spend your time investing in that, you have run yourself down into a dead end. Um, so, I mean, for example, I recall that very early on with Kubernetes. Um, there was a, you know, there were sort of two two camps. One of the camps was, man, this Kubernetes thing is great, and I'm going to get lots of great things done with it, and it's going to, uh, it's going to be the next big thing. And then the other side was mixed in different ways. Some were looking at it and saying, this is, you know, this this is Google hubris. <laughs> this isn't going to do anything or go anywhere. Docker Swarm looks way nicer than Kubernetes. Um, that's going to solve the problem. And we've you can see so many examples of a technically better solution not actually succeeding because it didn't get there fast enough or didn't have the right sort of backing or wasn't made by Google. Um, it, there's lots of different externalities that cause software to succeed or fail. All of that to say, I, I, and especially as I get older, I only have so many hours in the day to keep up with technology. I think... I have seen examples of of coworkers, engineers who pigeonhole themselves. They know and understand a particular piece of technology. They never work on sort of building or growing knowledge around new pieces of technology, and then they they get left behind. In air quotes, I'm going to aim for something in the middle, in the sense that I don't have the time to chase every new piece of technology. Um, but I will have to take the time to chase and learn those that win, uh, the ones that come out on top, the ones that, you know, actually get implemented, get work done, and that the industry as a whole is moving toward. The most recent example of that actually has been Kubernetes in the cloud. I think that if you look a decade ago, and 
you see usage of AWS and you see usage of cloud-based services and people are starting to look at things like S3 and the, the initial EC2 bits that are coming out of AWS. They're like, man, this is really nice. I don't have to worry about this, that, or the other. I only have to worry about, um, you know, getting my software onto this and running it, but I don't have to worry about like loading up the operating system or provisioning hardware or anything like that. Um, so I actually had a moment about eh, four-ish, I guess now four-ish years ago uh, at my employer where I had spent uh, some time with you um, working on building out the tooling that was provisioning um, co-located hardware, like hardware data centers. And the company decided, no, nah, it's time to go to the cloud. And I said to myself, you know what, there's, there's enough. Like this has sort of reached enough of a critical mass where everybody is picking up and moving in the cloud and realizing the cloud's benefits that it's, it is time for me to learn the skill set. Um, it's a gap in my knowledge and it's a big enough gap that and it's a big enough thing in the industry that is a gap I need to fill. So I said, I want to go do this. Like, can I, can I get in on the ground floor for the work for the company to pick up and go to the cloud? And can I take the opportunity to, to build that knowledge out? And I did. And now, you know, four years later, I think I kind of sort of know how GCP works maybe. Um, but, and, you know, I'm, I'm in, in a better place with that. And like, I've, I've gained and learned new skills. And I, I've sort of gotten to the point where I accept, like, that's what I'm going to have to do for my whole career because computing moves so fast. But I definitely don't have the time to look at every cool, new, awesome thing coming up because so many of them won't be cool, new, and awesome a year later because it just doesn't make it. Um, so I'm trying to, I'm just trying to sort of intentionally be a little bit behind the curve so that whatever filters through and remains is something that I can take the opportunity to um, build knowledge on and and be able to execute in. Oh, ride ride the wave as it's cresting or as it's just crested. Yeah, as, like, as opposed yeah. to being in front and being thrashed around in all of the waves. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't have the I don't have the time to be in front of all of those in front of the wave and sort of keep up with everything that's going on. Um, and I mean, I think that I've, and, and I'm sort of also finding that the technology sort of like startups follow the technology in that same sort of way. You will see like generations of startups that are on particular technology stacks because that was like the, the big hotness of that day. And I think that some of those technology stacks then if luckily or correctly chosen are, are poised to help companies grow big if they, if they pop. Others, they are not poised to help companies grow big if they pop and then the companies have to spend time to actually re-architect portions of it because that technology failed. Um, you know, the, the team that was behind maintaining it isn't working on it anymore because nobody else used it. Now you've got to scale it up bigger. Um, I, I think staying behind the curve a little bit is, is a not bad way to ensure that you don't pigeonhole your, your entire company from a technological standpoint, let alone yourself from a, from a skill set standpoint. Um, and you, you hear the argument of, of use boring technology um, said <laughs> all the time. I've, ne I've never heard that before. You've never heard that one before. Um, <laughs> I think that it's, I, I think that the fundamental core of the, of the, of the statement is, is correct in the sense that you don't want to be on the very front end of technology unless you are the company intentionally trying to 
shift that paradigm. But if you are a company who wants to use a technology to get something else done, it is a tool that is a means to an end. Staying on the very, very front end of things is risky business. Perfect segue. Perfect segue. Rust. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think when I do this thing where I stand back, like containers were obvious to me mm -hmm. as a winner yep. in like 2014, 2015. Like Docker comes out. Like containers have been a thing, but nobody's really using them. Yeah. And then Docker adds this tool chain around it and makes yeah. it popular for, for me to tie this back to what I'm on right now. You know, this, the whole wire thing. It's like tell scale, you know, makes WireGuard approachable for me. And it's like, yes, you know, zero trust networking and those sorts of things I think are going to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I felt like in 2014, 2015, I'm watching containers become a thing and become popular. And Docker did that. Yeah. And then uh, to your point by 20, I mean, it's hard to go back. 2016, we had Kubernetes, we had Mesos, uh, we had Docker Swarm, we had Nomad. Oh, I forgot I'm about a, Nomad. <laughs> oh, man, I'm such a Nomad fan, right? I think that does not get enough airtime ever. Like, I need to find somebody. I know people, so I need to find somebody to come on and would you do a whole show on just Nomad. Just talk about Nomad. It needs more press. It's such a great tool for what it does. And it doesn't have to just use containers. So there's my plug for Nomad. Nomad can schedule all kinds of schedule. Schedule anything. Please sponsor um, me. <laughs> what'd you say? Please sponsor me. Yeah, yeah. Sponsor me? No. No, 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 no. Um, but... I do think it's interesting. Things have a certain feeling to them. So like when I used Kubernetes, so I did a bake off and I integrated Nomad into a product. And so that's why I have this near and dear infatuation with Nomad. So I used Kubernetes. I used Nomad. And I used Mesos and I immediately ruled out Mesos. Like it didn't feel right. Mm -hmm. And I know it's cotton back up in popularity a bit. Like I think, it, I think Docker desktop now includes Mesos. The way it includes Kubernetes, I think that's a thing they, they've done in the past year. I think so. I haven't. Uh, um, yeah. But yeah, so it's like you see these technologies, they have a certain feel to them. They do get traction. Like the, the one that kills me that got traction is Helm. I hate that Helm is so pa. I hate Helm. I hate it. <laughs> I hate the idea of templating YAML. I hate how popular it's gotten. Of course, it solves a real problem. It does. Um, I said a whole nother, right? I could do a whole nother podcast episode just on Helm. You know, and so you look at these technologies and you look at what's coming and they have a certain feel to them. And I'm like, okay, Rust is, in my opinion, and I'm not an expert in any way on languages or anything like that, but Rust has that feel to me now. I feel like what I felt with Docker 2014, I'm feeling with Rust today. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the kernel is, is adopting it, or at least blessed the adoption of it. I'm like, it's going to stick around. And so I'm curious, you know, what your thoughts are on languages. I guess you could start too. Like I'll, I'll make a note. We can always talk about Rust, but what are you doing today? Are you doing Python? Go. What are you doing day to day? I don't write code anymore. <laughs> okay. So what's your opinion on, if you're not writing code day to day, what's your opinion on Rust? <laughs> um, I, I, I think I'm about in the same boat as you. I think that, if we, if we use the wave analogy, I think you're a little bit further ahead on the wave than I am with it. Um, I do agree the fact that um, our benevolent dictator for life, Linus Torvalds, has blessed the use of rest 
uh, within the kernel, at least for today, I believe only for module development. That's I don't right, believe yeah. that the kernel itself uh, can currently be implemented in two, um, in two different uh, languages because I don't want to think about what it takes to produce that uh, executable binary. Um, all of that to be, all that being said, um, yeah, I think, I think that Rust has shown that it solves in a approachable, robust way some of the very basic problems with uh, compiled with with compiled code that has manual memory management. Um, and so here you go. Here is code that can compile to machine uh, instructions. It gives you all of the benefits of uh, being, you know, fast and well optimized for the architecture that it's running on. But you no longer have an entire class of problem to deal with anymore. And I think that that fundamental, um, that sort of fundamental problem solve, absolutely poises it to be something that sticks around for the very long term. There is a fundamental class of problem. It's saying, no, you don't have to worry about it anymore. Um, I think that because, now I don't think that that itself is enough to actually get it like sort of to the finish line for long-term viability. Um, you then have to actually have adoption of it. To get adoption of it, it takes, it takes a little bit more work. You have to build the community. You have to build documentation. You have to build up tooling so that anyone, anyone in air quotes, can get in there and use it and use it effectively which it seems that the Rust community has managed to do because they've managed to convince, you know, the Linux kernel development um, community that it is a worthwhile endeavor to try to use it. And so I think the only thing left to get over the finish line in my mind is that um, you can use it in the Linux kernel now. Let's see if it actually happens. Are there enough um, implementations of kernel modules that show the benefit that get things done the way that Rust developers, you know, would like to see them done. We don't have to worry about memory management anymore for these. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Is there a way to... Oh, lost my train of thought there. Basically, will it get adopted enough? Will there be enough usage of it that we start to see, you know, kernel modules come out for you know, important portions of hardware, widely adopted pieces of hardware where the module sort of only exists in Rust. Nobody ever wrote it in C or C++. It only has a Rust implementation. And if you want to continue to like love it and move forward with it, you have to um, you have to learn and use Rust. Uh, I think that I had read that Asahi Linux, the distribution that is being built to run on um, the ARM-based Macs, one of the one of the module developers used Rust to implement the GPU driver for them. And apparently, the ARM the, the Mac GPU drivers are odd beasts unto themselves. They do not look and feel and act like other GPUs in in basically any way. Um, and I, I had read that like the implementation was like was a, not a breeze, but like, it was a wonderful experience for the person doing the implementation. Like they went from zero to, you know, drawing 3D devices with open, 3D objects with OpenGL in a very short period of time. Yep, all of that's looking like if, if we get to a point where it's like, do you want to run Linux on an ARM-based Mac? 
you're going to have to utilize this Rust-based module, and that's the only one that exists in the world. Yeah, I, th I think that you're hitting critical mass there. So the only thing I'm waiting for to feel like that Rust is getting over the finish line is actually seeing like wide enough adoption in the Linux kernel for various modules where that's the only implementation. That's that's the only other thing I think that's left to say. Yeah, this is sticking around. I, I looked it up uh, while you were talking to get the exact dates. <clears throat> they started writing the Rust driver. It's the it's a Linux Rust GPU mm -hmm. kernel driver. And they started on August 18th and on September 24th, they were rendering a cube. I don't know if the cube was animated and rotating, but they were rendering a cube. Over a so, yep. Six weeks, five weeks, six weeks. Yeah. Now what I don't know and what I think would personally for me be interesting is was the, was the human doing that implementation familiar with Rust or was it their first attempt to utilize it? Because if it was their first attempt to utilize it, like that's an even better, um, like that's an even stronger argument for it there. It's like they went from, you know, presumably having plenty of Linux kernel development experience, understanding the ins and outs of how to do that. So, you know, they're proficient with C or C++ to some other language where they can probably take a lot of those uh, concepts that they understand, some of them that are new, put it all together and actually have a working GPU driver in a month. Sounds good. Uh, yeah, they, their words were... Um... I don't have much experience with Rust. That was what started. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, you know, the tutorial I think is interesting. I have to go back and do the tutorial several times. This has came up in quite a few episodes. I always bring up Rust. I'm, it's, you know, it's another thing that I'm, you know, hot on right now. Yeah. And I think I've done the tutorial three times and each time a little bit more sticks with me. I can read Rust code as long as it's not using a ton of macros yeah. and, and things that I'm not familiar with, but I can at least read it and understand it. And yep. I don't know. I'm, I'm concerned as I've always been a lazy developer, a very lazy developer. And I love Python. I learned C was the first thing I ever like learned as an actual, like true mm -hmm. programming language. And I learned enough, you know, to take some input, do something with it, put something out on the screen, just text. You know, it's just a very typical hello world kind of thing with input. Yeah. And I just hated all the ceremony. I, it made no sense to me. And I was like, this is what people write programs in. Like it blew my mind. Yeah. That this is how people were writing programs. This was like 1999, mm -hmm. maybe 2000, somewhere around there. And I hadn't played with C and I found Python a little before that. So I immediately went back to Python and started writing all my stuff in Python. And I've just, you know, been in love with Python now. Take that ceremony. Yeah. Right. And you go back and you look at, um, what was said about, you know, the origins of Python and that was part of it, right. It was mm -hmm. to not have the ceremony, get out of the way, just let you express your logic. And so go you know I picked up go in like 2012 ish so a decade ago i picked up go and now i, I fell in love with strongly typed languages and i understand now all this appeal I, I still don't like java i didn't like it then i don't like it now it's better they've cut a lot of the the syntax down with the latest versions but i still don't like it i don't love it i don't love the jvm um so yeah it is what it is but go i have fallen in love with so i kind of keep ping-ponging between python and go and rust you know, Rust is there, and I'm like, yeah, I should probably learn it, and I'm interested in it, and I appreciate what they're doing, but I'm concerned about what the community is trying to do. It feels like everything's relying on macros everywhere, and 
I don't like the macro side of it. I have to, I'm in this weird thing. It's a whole, you know, another episode too. I feel like I'm just, you know, repeating a lot of content the past couple episodes, but I'm real hung up on wanting to see more of the code that is driving the behavior of my programs and not just things that the compiler, you know, basically it's magic and the compiler is doing it for me and it exists in my binary, but I don't see it. You know, when I'm looking at my code, I just see the, the shorthand. I don't know. Yeah. It's just, it's a thing. I know it's not, I haven't built the comfort up with that. Well, I mean, you can always go look at what the macro is, is doing by looking at what the compiler produces. Well, sure I could. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't, uh, that's, that's never, to be honest, that's never really bothered me as long as I have an IDE that can sort of quickly introspect a macro and show me what it does. Um, I sort of agree that like trying to build up the context of what a macro does and keep them all straight in your head, not worth the time, not worth trying to do. There's, there's, that way lies madness. You'll never keep it all straight. Um, but for me, it's, it, it really for me is, is akin to like, you know, large code bases where there's just so much going on there that like the code is over there. It's just somewhere you don't remember and you gotta go find it sometimes. Um, so that, that for me, that is, I, I feel that those really fall in the same sort of space. It doesn't, for me, conceptually split up to a point where it, where it, where it sort of annoys me. Yeah. Like it's not actually code anywhere that you've written. It's not actually code anywhere. It's, it's, a compiler routine that just gets jammed in there um, that, that you you don't really have to look at or care about or know about, but you can if you want. It, it, it's all right with me. How, how much of my Go code isn't actually what I've written, oh, yeah. right? How, where, where is it optimizing out loops, mm-hmm. you know, unrolling loops and doing all kinds of stuff? So, yeah, my argument holds no water at all. At all. It's just a weird thing. I've got this weird hang-up. i got to get over it. Something about the semantics of it particularly seems to seems to be there like what is it about the fact that it's that it's a macro that i mean i can make a guess um honestly i feel like the 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 thing about macros um unlike um you know just code that's somewhere somewhere else is the macros um in almost all cases macro syntax and like look and feel is different like the thing about go is in many cases when you're like looking at a piece of Go code and you accidentally like fall into the actual source code for the language, you're like, whoops, <laughs> I felt like I thought I was looking at my own code and I accidentally like I'm in the vendor directory now. Okay, I'm looking at a library. And then sometimes you actually land inside the source of Go itself. It's like, why am I looking at source code for like this sort? Oh, well, because I went too far. Macros don't really actually let you do that because like you get to a macro, you're like, and that's a macro because it looks weird. Um, <laughs> yeah. And like, it's a bit more like jarring or not, not jarring, but like, um, and it's like, stop. There might be an argument that that's good though. Like you're sort of, you're, you're being forced to understand the boundary. Um, but the, I think the converse side of it is like, this looks weird. Like this looks like some sort of little literal magic that's been injected into the middle of my code. That is a black box that I, don't understand or maybe can't understand or might have some sort of behavior, you know, side effects to it that I won't know. Like, I, I think that there is actually a space there where you like your brain gets unhappy because it's like, Oh, and I, I, I hit the barrier, the thing I'm not supposed to like peek behind the curtain at and see what it does. You can, it just looks like maybe you shouldn't or shouldn't have to care. 
I like that. It just I, looks foreign. Like, it looks foreign. It's not part of the thing you're working on. I think another thing is I've just lied to myself about how much I really do understand about what's going on by looking at the code that I'm writing. Mm. I go back to the Go example, like any optimizing compiler that's just like, yeah, I'll, oh, sure. Yes, it's doing what I told it to do. Like, no, it's not. Yeah. No, it's not. It, it's being smarter than me and it's changing. It's not a literal interpretation of what I've written. Yeah, I mean, yes, but also a little bit no. Like, there are definitely times where, like, you come across someone where, and like, sort of to put a human aspect into it, you come across somebody who knows way more than you do. And, like, they talk about a thing you have no idea about, and you're just smiling and nodding. And you're like, uh huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and in those cases, I, I like, A, like, they're, I think they're rarer than we expect them to be. Uh, because in a lot of cases, you'll come across, you'll come across somebody who you expect to know more, and they're like, I don't know. And you're like, what do you mean you don't know? You wrote this. And like, I don't know. Um, and so all, all of that to say that, um, to sort of come back to like getting to the macro and, and getting, getting to that is, yeah, like, I know that, I know that feeling, but I don't, I think that actually happens way, way less often then we actually think it will be like this code is doing something like super duper smart and crazy and amazing. And there's no way I'm going to be able to look at it and understand it. It's like, I've looked at my own code that I've written and been like, this code is doing crazy stuff and I have no idea what it's doing, but I wrote it. And I think that like, that is literally everybody. So like you can go and find some like crazy piece of code that's doing really weird things and then go find the author. And I don't think it would take you long to make the author go, uh, because like it, we we get so deep into the context and have it built up in our heads, and then we get the code down on the piece of paper, and then the context goes pew, and it's it's out of there. Like I wouldn't. That doesn't bother me because I've had enough interactions with really smart people who are like, huh, I don't know. That it's like okay, we are all human here. Like, yep, the code looks super smart. It looks super elegant. It looks super awesome. It does cool things. Um, but in the end, like, it, it, it is the product of a human looking at a thing and figuring it out. Like, you, you know, there have been hacker news threads where, like, people are like, show me really elegant pieces of code. And, like, the one that you always see shown is, like, the crazy, um, oh, I don't remember what it is, but, like, it was, it was in, like, the Doom or the Quake engine where they do an approximation of, like, a really complex mathematical transformation that is expensive. And inside of it is, like, just a bunch of random numbers. <laughs> that are all being yep. like churned through and you're like, what was John Carmack thinking? It's like, yeah, John Carmack probably stared at the problem for days and days and days and days on end and finally said, yeah, I think this works. But you know, it wasn't like John, I don't think that John Carmack like looked at that and it was just like, ah, and it magically popped out of his head fully formed immediately. Like it, it took time. It took context to build up. People forget context. People aren't sure. And like, I'm, I'm sure that plenty of people, Possibly even John Carmack himself have gone back and looked at that code and been like, "What was I thinking?" So it, it, that that doesn't it really that doesn't get to me anymore because like we're all human and we all forget what we were doing and we all like lose that context and have to go rebuild it for ourselves. The only difference is the person that wrote it can probably build it faster than you.
I looked this up because I do remember that specific example because it was like there was a copyright issue or something with it because it was a parallel invention. Like John yeah. Carmack figured it out in isolation and some other company did as well. Yeah. Um, and it was the, uh, what did they call it? It's the fast inverse square root. Yeah, the fast inverse square root. And so it's like inverse square root. Like how often do you need that in your day-to-day life? Like it's not even the fact that like, was he the person or and certainly he's, he's extremely intelligent. Oh, yeah. So that helps, but it's, it's also the person in that domain, that right domain context too, because yeah. where are you going to run into needing that, needing that performance around a fast inverse square root? Yeah. And I, I would be willing to bet dollars to donuts that nobody started working on that game engine knowing they would hit that problem. So like at some point we're going to have to deal with needing really fast inverse square roots. They probably got working on it for a good long while. And they said, man, why is this so, why is this dog slow? And then they pulled out their debugger and we're finally like, Oh, it's because we're doing this thing a bajillion times and it's slow. All right, let's optimize it. You know, sometime later, John Carmack's like, ta-da. And there it is. But you know, I don't think anybody, I don't think for any sort of like really esoteric pieces of code. Um, I mean, especially like, like for all of the ones that go on to Hacker News, it's like, can you like show me the best example you know of, of an elegant solution? And people show up with like the examples of the fast inverse square root or, I mean, Carmack has another one, binary space partitioning, the, the bits that he did to um, build the maps for Doom and all of those. Like, I think for every single one of those examples, um, Nobody like knew that was going to be a thing they were going to have to do before they got there. They got there and were like, I'm going to have to like, this is a real bottleneck. This is something I'm going to have to dig out and figure out and solve. And then they just built up context for it. I think that, yeah, some people build the context real fast. They get there real fast. They look at the problem and they're like, I know a way to do this. I think I can try this. And their first guess is right. And like, it goes well. Other peeps are like, man, I worked on that code for a month, and I still don't fully understand why it totally works, but it does. But every single one of them, like, people didn't just magically produce it on the first try or didn't even know they were going to get there. Like, they got there, they saw it, and said, well, now i got to tackle this one. Do you have any code like that in your career that you've written? Do you have any code that stands out in your mind? No. Maybe not as something that's maybe <laughs> was complicated like that or but do you just have anything anything stand out in your mind like of, of everything you've done in your career you're like oh yeah this piece of code was elegant or this piece of code was kind of tricksy you know for different reasons I, I i build context for code and then it promptly exits my brain um i don't i don't dwell so to speak like on my code like i don't sort of like go back and review it and like put notes in it like come back and make this better later like i am i am probably a little too pragmatic in that sense and that I'm like, I'm, I'm going to slap some code together that gets this work done. I'm going to get some tests written around it. And if it is good enough, I am done here. Um, I will, I, like, like I was saying before, like I will wait until I get to a spot where it's like, Hey, this isn't scaling. <laughs> and then I'll figure out why it's inefficient and make it better. Um, so I, th- I think this one's going to be a little difficult for me to answer because I, I don't feel like I ever really produce elegant solutions to anything. I produce, I produce naive solutions to almost everything and then wait for the naive solution to fail. <laughs> and then I'm making it better. So let me see if I can think about, um, 
one of the naive ones that failed and I sort of had to go back and, and make it better. Nothing honestly is immediately coming coming to mind. There are there are two there are two that are here that, that my brain is telling me that I don't actually feel like are elegant solutions, but if my brain is set, is pulling them up, so I might as well go with them. Um so the first one was it and this is funny, I think this is actually like sort of a personal aspect of me is like I don't I definitely have imposter syndrome when it comes to writing code. Like I write code, code is out there, code does stuff. I always assume that like the problems I'm working on are like too trivial to actually matter. Um, like, okay, I wrote a co I wrote some code that does a thing. Yeah, but it doesn't matter. It's a little thing. It's not that important. Um, that is, that is me all the way down. Um, but the, like the first one that comes to mind was I had, we had a network on which we attached pretty much every physical piece of hardware that we had to perform backups for it. Um, it was a separate network connection for each individual device to do those backups so it didn't consume the bandwidth of like the actual sort of um, network interface that was taking like application traffic. Um, that network filled up because planning ahead is hard in the network space and the network was full and we had to expand the network. Um, so we had to go through and touch at that point like almost 2,000 physical pieces of hardware and swap out their network um, configs. And you know that's it's risky business um, because you you sort of you mess up and you accidentally touch the wrong network device by accident somehow and you've um, broke uh, you've you know you've caused an outage. Uh, there were about eight different use cases. They were. There were like virtual machines that were this way. There were pieces of hardware that were this way. There were pieces of hardware that were otherwise this way. There were pieces of hardware that had not one gig, but they were 10 gigs, so they looked this way. And there were a whole lot of individual edge cases to handle. And every single one of them, um, you had to be super duper careful about. And, you know, our, our network engineers were like, oh, should we just like, is it faster for us to just do this by hand? I'm like, not for 2000 servers, no way. Um, so I, I went and hacked together about a thousand lines of Python that used Fabric to go and SSH to every single one of the servers and do their work. But like I spent a lot of time, um, like figuring out Fabric enough to be able to get it to a point where um, I could, I, like, I could hand this tool off to um, to other engineers that could use it and sort of cover all the edge cases they needed and kind of fire away and go and do their work. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time building in the confidence that it would work right and that I wouldn't have an engineer come back and say to me, uh, yeah, well, I went and used it and now the server's down and other, other stuff that's tough there. The code itself wasn't actually all that elegant um, other than um, it sort of had to handle a lot of edge cases very carefully. I think more really, really like the elegance of it was was the the take taking a problem and sort of handling all of the myriad of edge cases that popped up with it, solving all of them, and then handing it off to other engineers to use. And those other engineers like never came back and complained that it broke. Um, so like it, it's not a particularly elegant solution in any way. It's not like here's a really really specific like edge case problem that we have to deal with. And I'm going to go and find a way to solve it that like nobody that like is not 
uh, obvious, but you know, does it in a very good way. Like, I really don't have any good examples of that. For me, elegant code really is code that works in every possible use case that appears, and it doesn't have a thousand um, paper cuts that uh, that that kill everybody because, like, oh yeah, it works except when there's just one like one edge case where it's not uh, automated fully, and so you gotta sort of manually touch it, like. For me, elegance of code is like it's is its completeness for its use case, and not necessarily its cleverness of implementation. I feel like I'm in the same boat. I can't think of any one thing that I've ever done. Yeah, that just really stands out. I don't have a, a uh, crowning achievement. Yeah, me neither. Um, I- it's it's definitely more of the of the. For for me, the elegance comes from like showing the the reduction in toil or showing like the ability to handle um edge cases that that are are really uh esoteric but that it can that it can do gracefully or that or that otherwise like you know does its job and does it well i i'm a big fan of pragmatic code i'm a big fan of pragmatic solutions and I think getting into what I've enjoyed the most in my career, it's always around some sort of like automation, mm-hmm. the toil reduction. So yeah. I feel you on this. I don't know. That, the other example I always give is like domino rally. If you ever play domino rally, you stand up the dominoes, right? And you just tip the first domino over and you watch it go and like do, and it just all tips over. I love that. Yeah. I love that. It's like trying to explain to somebody why I love infrastructure automation kind of stuff. I don't know. Maybe it's not Domino. Maybe it's more uh, those marble run things, you know, because mm-hmm. maybe, yeah. maybe that's a better one. Cause there's a little bit of like the machine, the little elevator lifts the marble yeah. up and like you had to build the plumbing machines. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for me, it's, it, I, I think I'm very close to that, to that. For me, it is, um, I actually sort of, I, I, I internally visualize it as gears gears of various shapes and sizes all properly interlocking just the right way so that they all turn and work properly. So, you know, you look at a clock and it's because, like, all these gears are turning and some are turning fast, some are turning slow, some are really big and some are really small. For some reason, there's this spring over here and it's doing a thing. I don't know what that spring's doing there, but that spring's doing its thing. For me, it is sort of knowing exactly actually what those gears are doing, why that gear is turning that way, how that gear, um, how fast it needs to go, how slow it needs to go, and like piecing them all together and finally watching that machine do its job. And like, you, you know, you turn it on, the machine starts turning, and the thing you needed to do, it's there. It's done, and there it is. That, that, that's how I sort of visualize it in my head, and that, that's, that's the thing that sort of gives me, like, that gets me going the most is the, the automation as a many disparate parts that can be simple or complicated all fit together in just the right way to achieve that end. And watching that come out is like, yes, that is, that is the highest point of, of any computing work that I do is like the, you know, the, the pieces are all put together. You push the button and you know, the thing you need to get done is now done. They did what you expected. Yes. <laughs> I will also, I'm always mildly amused, entertained and shocked when computers actually do what I ask them to do. Tell in me general. about it. 
It's like, whoa, I, I said for it to do that, and it actually did it. Are we sure? Like, let's double check. Yeah. I, it's funny. I can't remember the code, but I had that moment. I, I, I lie a little bit. I write code every once in a while, but I had that moment a month or two ago where it was like, you know, I, I wrote a little bit of code to get a thing done, and I was like, it's probably going to break the first time I tested. I probably did this wrong or that wrong, and you hit the button, and it's like, oh, dang, it did what I thought it was going to do. And, it, and I just remember because it was one of those first try moments. <laughs> I got it done the first time. All right. That happens. So rare think, for me. Well, no, well, I was going to say, I think it's, it's rare for a lot of people. I was going to say, I, I do think that's something that happens that you don't appreciate until later in your career. At least five years. That's what I would say. Because I think it, happen, every, it happens to everybody, right? Everybody gets yeah. something right and it works, whatever. But I do think you have to face some amount of, uh, I'll just say it is what it is. You have to face some amount of bullshit in your job. Oh, yeah. Right? One way or the other with getting, trying to get something done. In yeah. a few years of that, you know, in a career in tech, and then, wow, you really appreciate those wins yeah. when you do sit down to do one thing and you do it and it works. You're like, well, okay, yeah. that's great. Yeah. yeah. I can give you the corollary to that of like why, like when I mentioned before, like I don't write code anymore. Um, so I can, I can give you a, a concrete thing that um, uh, I, I got, I had to let somebody else go do, even though I really wanted to do it, which is, uh, which is like the story of my life these days. Um, so like for the Rube Goldberg machine you want to put together, um, Cloud SQL instances in GCP. The admin API gives you the ability to make an instance and make a user on the instance, and that's where it stops. Um, it does not give you the ability to provision the user's roles, um, if we're talking MySQL. It doesn't sure. give you the ability to provision that user's password, and it does not give you the ability to... Um, uh, what is it? Uh, it's three things. The user you build, its role, and it, I guess it is just those two, the role and the password for that user. I would like to automate that. Um, so how can I do that? Well, there are MySQL providers for Terraform. So we build the Cloud SQL instances with Terraform. Um, where are, are there providers for building roles and passwords for MySQL and Terraform? Of course there are. But all of them assume that you have connectivity to the MySQL database because you need to connect to that SQL database and actually build and provision the users and roles inside the database. You can't do it external to the database unless like you've built tooling to do it. And Google didn't build that tooling to do it. Okay, so now I need access to the database. But it's a Cloud SQL database. So I need to run this Terraform execution, like the runner, somewhere that has access to the database. So I can give the database a public IP, which is a terrible <laughs> idea from a security standpoint, or <laughs> yeah. I can give it a public IP and use TLS certificates, but now I have to go and automate the getting of TLS certificates to be able to talk to this newly provisioned database. Like, it turns into a large Rube Goldberg machine. I put it, and I, I wrote it all out in excruciating detail in a text bag. It was like, we're going to probably need to build a service that does this provisioning. It needs to be handed the following inputs. It needs to be given, like, here are the users you need to build. Or multiple times, here's the user to build, here's the role to grant, and here's the password to set. Um, the user, actually, you may not, is actually pre-built because the admin API does it, but here's the user you're working on. Um, we're going to do that inside of a service um, that is in Cloud Run. 
And it's going to use the Go Cloud SQL connector, which is basically the Cloud SQL auth proxy as a library so that it can actually connect to the Cloud SQL instance. And after we're done doing all of that, now we're going to go build a Terraform provider that can actually interface with this service through its API so that we can finally get to the final destination of I show up to my Terraform code in a repo somewhere and I say I want three more Cloud SQL instances like this. And I have encoded into there already the expectation that I need the following like six users with these passwords and roles because I need a thousand instances of this when we are all said and done with the work that we're doing. And I do not want to have to do anything manually across that whole thing. And I finished writing a text back and it, it's, it's pretty heavily detailed because it was, I was so happy because it was one of those cases where it was a relatively concrete use case. I knew exactly what the end state needed to be and I knew exactly what the start state was, like where the Google admin APIs fall off and the gap is there. I write it all up. It's all there. And I'm like, and I can't implement it because it's not my job anymore. Like, I really want to implement this. Like, I so badly want to go sit over in a corner and work on this for a couple of weeks and come back and be like, and I push the button and it did the thing it's expected to. And I'm absolutely certain that that will not work the first time. There's a lot of moving parts of it. It'll break like eight times, but I couldn't. Like, I, I, I picked it up and I handed it to a more junior engineer. It was like, here you go. Do you want to do this? Does this look, does this look fun? He's like, man, this looks amazing. This looks so much fun. I'm like, it is going to be so much fun. Have fun doing it. <laughs> and like, I, I, you know, I handed him the text back and I said, go on it. Like, build the tickets, do the work, come back to me if you got any questions, if there's any clarifying bits that you need. But like, here's a really concrete problem to go fire away. I handed it to him and I walked over to like the next more nebulous problem and was like, now let's go figure out the, the solution to this more nebulous problem. Um, and that like that, that's become like my, my sort of day to day is like, I, I direct others to do implementation work because, um, you know, I can, I can, I can look at here's where the cloud SQL admin API ends and here's what our end state needs to be. And I can write down everything that needs to be done in the middle to bridge that gap and then I can go hand it to somebody else. Writing everything down to bridge the gap is is not easy work for a junior engineer. It is easier work for me. But every once in a while I'm like, I have just got to go find some little bit of code that I can go write so I can have that dopamine moment where I can have that moment. It's like I write a little bit of code, I whack the enter button and it does what I asked it to do and that's great and I feel so good. Because yeah, you. the human aspects of getting to that point where you can just write a little bit of code and get it out the door. It's like every single computer, uh, every single like software engineer is like, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> like I didn't want to be a software engineer to have to interface with other humans, figure out like whether or not we can do this in the gigantic pile of like business that we're trying to get done because work is infinite. Like I just want to write software. And they're like, no, you've done that. That was when you were young. Now you have to actually decide whether or not you should write the software. It's like, ah, I hate this. I've told other people, it's like, do you want to go write code? And this the this person that I've had this conversation with, I've had this with a couple of people, but one person in, in mind particularly, um, I had this conversation, I was like, you know, I will know that it's time to promote you to senior engineer when you refuse to want to write code. 
for yeah. all of this stuff. Like yeah. you're just way too excited right now yeah. about like actually going and doing this work. Like I need you to hate it. <laughs> I need you to go, no, or, wait, why should this code even exist? Yes, exactly. It's not that I don't, it's not that I want you to hate writing code because you've done it so much. It's now boring. I want you to ask yourself, do I really want to have to maintain this code? <laughs> yep. Struggle's real. The, str the struggle is real. Oh man. But yeah, that's that's um, that is that is I think that is probably like the the most the easiest way to distill down like the the sort of like line to go from like junior to something more senior, which is you're not thinking about just writing the code and solving the problem. You're thinking about the context in which this code will now live, which again is nothing any of us actually wanted to ever do when we first started thinking about doing software engineering, which I guess to spin it all the way around back to the start is maybe a good argument for getting back to academia. Wait a minute. Because you just want to talk about it. <laughs> no, no, you just, you just implement it and you don't have to worry about the context in which it exists. Yeah, that's where you get fair. to wave your hand and be like, eh, that's, that's an implementation detail somebody else can deal with. I mean, acad academia has its own other set of problems on the other side, which is you only ever talk about doing stuff and never actually do it. That's where I was going with yeah. this. As we're like recording a podcast, I think it's great to just go ahead and call me out. At this point in my career, I'd rather just talk about things. For me, it comes and goes. Um, we're, we're actually in a really heavy area of ideation right now for the next set of work that we're doing for like the next six months at work. And we've been ideating now for about three-ish weeks. Um, there have been a lot of long meetings where we're, you know, writing down all the problems we can think of, grouping them, putting in conceptual spaces, reversing the problem, and then like looking at solutions. Um, on one hand, that's great because it's not a process we've ever really done before in the past. We've definitely at, at my current company, like picked up and just ran straight headlong into solving a problem without ever taking a moment to stop and ask ourselves, should we or shouldn't we? But at the same time, we've been ideating for so no, so long now and sort of ballooning the problem as big as it can be that everybody is now starting to get fatigued in the opposite direction. Like, I want to stop thinking about and talking about this and can I please just actually go start implementing some of this? It's like, yeah, if we're at that point, let's go do that. Because, because um, yeah, like the the thing about ideation is like the the intentional portion of what we're doing is like thinking about the entirety. Like we're we are intentionally trying to push the problem space as far out in all directions as we can, so that we can try and see like that problem space just keeps going and going and going. Let's not do that one, but this one we keep pushing it, and we're trying to like find more of the nuance in it we can't find anymore okay maybe that's a more well-defined problem space and that's a better spot to be in but like by the time you're done pushing in so many different directions your brain is just like falling out of your ears because you're you're thinking about so many decision trees and if then else is throughout it you just finally eventually get to a point where you're like i don't want to think about it anymore i just want to try and go implement some and that's right about where we're getting like my team is getting super antsy over the past week like can we just go implement stuff it's like dude it's december 10th like everybody's disappearing for the holidays here starting like next week like we're going to roll up the ideation finish it up here and when we hit the ground running in january yep we're going to get implementing because it's a good transition point let's just go do that 
I can only I talk like... about it for sorry, I can only talk about it for so long. Like if you can only like if you can talk and only talk about it forever, then kudos for you. My my, I have about three weeks is my window before I'm like I gotta go do something. <laughs> I can't just talk about things. I have to do things to understand them. Like yeah. I have to actually play with things and write code and explore things. Yeah, <clears throat> and um, I don't know. You know, it's. No, I enjoy talking about things. I've used this again for people listening. You know, it's repetitive at this point, but I am always saying the same thing. It's kind of like, you know, I've gotten the shirt at this point. Like, yeah, been here, done that, got the shirt. Yeah. It's somebody else's turn. And I'm okay with that. I'm very much okay with like, I want to be out of day to day writing code. Like, yeah, I enjoy writing code and exploring problems. And when you're, when you're figuring out work to do, I think you can only go so far in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying in a vacuum without actually starting the work. Yeah. I think that's the big thing about agile that everybody overlooks is that you just don't know what the work is till you start doing the work yep. period. There's can, something is yeah. always going to sneak up. Yeah. You cannot write down beforehand every last bit of the work that you have to do so that you can then sort of magically chop it up, put it into buckets and say, well, it's going to take this long. Never happens. I mean, if it does happen, it's a rarity and it's for a relatively narrowly scoped thing where you've already thought about the problem a lot because maybe it's been biting you a million times. That being said, um, for our agile processes, like we, we've tried various forms of agile processes. And I think particularly in systems and infrastructure engineering, which is very interrupt heavy because it's like, you know, I didn't plan for a war room to happen today. It just sort of did. Um, I think it's still useful to just like have a spot to organize all the work that you do need to do and just have it written down somewhere. But like, we're going to try and build a sprint and get this work done in these two weeks. Forget it. Like we'll run sprints, but you better believe our burn down charts for every sprint just look ridiculous because it's like, well, we got nothing done this week. Yeah. Because it was black Friday, cyber Monday. And we spent the past two weeks putting out fires versus other weeks where it's like, well, we thought this is all going to be a lot of work and we got it done in two days. Like, it's fine for organizing your thoughts when you're doing, like, infrastructure-style engineering, but don't care about the sprints. Put stuff in the sprints and work the sprints, but, like, don't care. Adjust sprint scope all the time, as much as you need. I think you said something, you know, a few minutes ago. You said work is infinite. It is. And when you get into, like, infrastructure work and, you know, the the behind-the-scenes work, there there just is always something. Something you could do. Something you could make better something that you always wanted to finally like you know automate away completely because there's like that one or two edge cases just drive you bonkers it's infinite there'll always be a bunch of that so like you know uh, i think an infrastructure engineering superpower is um being able to prioritize it all knowing what's actually the most important work to do um and I think from an infrastructure engineering standpoint, and, and all of computing, it's like you have a customer. Who's your customer? You're writing code. You're doing a thing for someone else. If you're an infrastructure engineer, your customers are other engineers in your organization. If you're a software engineer that's you know running application code, okay, yeah, your customers are probably your users, but they're actually also more like your product managers, your project managers, and the business as a whole. Like, what are your business needs but you always have a customer prioritize for your customer and in, i think in infrastructure engineering prioritizing for your customer is easy your customers are fairly narrowly defined and 
relatively intelligent. <laughs> like your your customers are other engineers with whom you can have a conversation that is relatively informed on both sides of that conversation and relatively easily come to like, yeah, I'm going to work on this and not that because if I do this, your life is way better faster. I think it's a very optimistic outlook, but I like it. You're you are right that you can there is it is a much higher bandwidth conversation when you're talking with other engineers about a problem in that domain. Yeah, I mean there I mean there are definitely times when engineers are like, I, I don't know. And you're like, okay, let's let's try and build out what you do know. Um I I worked one time in a capacity where I was prioritizing work based on end user customer feedback. Um, I learned in about two days, this ain't for me. Um, because two things happened. One, I was way too far away from the customer to be able to actually truly understand what their problem was. Because this was, this was consumer hardware, so we gave it to people and then they just showed up with complaints. And I never have like, can I see what you're doing? Can I like take a look at how you're doing this? Can like, can you show me more? I could never build the context that I needed. And then they were only ever complaining because people only ever show up when stuff doesn't work. They don't show up when it does work. And so like, it took me two days to be like, I can't build the context I need to really solve these problems. And I can't even understand if this is a big problem or a little problem. And all I'm seeing is everybody showing up and being like, this is how your software sucks and I hate it. And I'm like, it, it, it destroyed me. I, my morale at my job went from here straight down to zero in like two days. And like my, my boss is like, what happened? I'm like, I have to quit. And they're like, wait, what? I'm like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I was like, cause for the first year I was working there, it was just get the product out the door. So like my customer was actually just like our CEO and the person that was saying like, this is a feature set we need to have get out the door and work. That immediately shifted the moment it went out the door because the customer was now actual customers and actual customers were like, I hate it and it sucks. And it's like, can you help me confirm whether or not it sucks because it actually sucks or it sucks because like you put your one wireless router here and your other wireless router like, through like three Faraday cages over there, and you expected them to magically talk to each other. Like, but I, I, it was really like I went from like it's okay to no, I don't want to do this anymore immediately. And so I've never done it again. And I, I, I like that was the most valuable lesson I learned in that that year of work, which is like my work has to be work where my customers are other engineers, and or at least minimally others with whom I can interface and build very detailed context so that I can actually like work on and solve a problem. Like I, I, I can't read the tea leaves in a customer complaint and understand what the actual problem is and, and solve it for me. I got, I have to have more than that. It's a different skill set entirely. It, it is. And I'm, I mean, I, and I'm not good at it. Like I am not good at, I am not good at like synthesizing I'm not good at like bridging the gap, the gap mm -hmm. between what I know and what they don't or what they know and I don't and trying to like put those two things together and meet in the middle. Um, I've, I'm, I'm not, I am not good at that if the gap is wide enough. Like I can generally do it only when like the, the skill sets are relatively close to each other, but if they are far apart, 
I can't. I'm bad at it. Well, we're almost out of time. Like literally, we have a minute. Oh wow! <laughs> so, anything you want to close on? I don't know. I've, we've gone all over the place. I don't. I don't know we, if there's anything left to close on. <laughs> we did go all over the place. This is great. Maybe I named the podcast the wrong thing. Maybe it should be called Rambling Man. <laughs> <laughs> no, instead of Fish Sales. But. Oh no, that that's me. You, I, um, I will go all over the place and talk all day if you let me. <laughs> I mean, that's totally why I started this because I just wanted to have conversations with people. So thank you. Oh no, thank you. I've been a. It's been great. I, I, I love hearing myself talk. I I admit that. I know it's true. <laughs> hey. Welcome to the club. So, so we'll figure out. Maybe we'll have you come back and do um, a part two, or uh, we'll spin something off of this and do do some more stuff. Or maybe but. I'd be happy with a part two where we don't talk a bit about technology and tech at all, and see where we can ramble in other other areas that aren't that. All right. Yeah, I'm down for that. All right. Well, Adam Allred, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in for this episode of Fish Shells. For show notes from this episode and more information about the show, visit leetrout.com. Music production by Haroon Srang. We'll see you next time.